Well, hey, good morning. It's good to see all of y'all. Since Easter, as a church, we have been talking all about and hoping for and praying for an awakening, both a personal and a national revival. And so last week, Pastor Trey asked the question, what if, at the end of all of our prayers, what if God actually said yes? Like as we long for, hope for, and pray for revival, what if God answered those prayers with a yes? Like I wonder, what would it look like for a church, for, a, for our community, for our nation to experience a new great awakening? In fact, what are the signs of a genuine movement of God taking place? You know, the good news is that we don't have to guess because the Scripture shows us very clearly what that looks like. We've seen in the life of Josiah. We saw in the church of Antioch just a couple of weeks ago. And in addition, Jonathan Edwards, who was a key leader in America's first great awakening, literally wrote the book on the subject as he witnessed firsthand what God was doing in our country in the 1700s. And in that book, he outlined five distinguishing marks of the work of the Spirit of God. And here they are. Like You can write these down, take a picture of it, whatever. This is what you should be praying for in your own life. Like this is what we should be looking for and longing for in our church and in our nation that he said as he looked at that first great awakening, he said the first thing he saw was a growing esteem for Jesus Christ. Like within the church and outside the church, this honor only due to Jesus was given to him. Next, he saw a renewed interest in theology and sound doctrine. Like in a world right now that we live in that is unraveling from truth, when God moves, there will be a longing for and a movement toward truth, toward sound doctrine. And then there was a deep devotion to the Word of God. Like as, as the lies of the world were all around them and are all around us, they went to the one place they could find with real substance and truth. The Word of God and they loved it. And then number four, discernible spirit of true repentance. People were dealing with their sin and dealing with the sin of their family and of the sin of their nation. And then finally, an unmistakable love for both God and neighbor. They were fulfilling the great commandment. Loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving their neighbor as themselves. Like we see these in the Scripture Right? We see these in the history of revival. We saw this in the Jesus people movement in the 60s and 70s when the Spirit of God moves in an awakening. People begin to take God seriously. They take His holiness seriously. They take His truth seriously. When the Spirit begins to move in a great awakening, people begin to take sin seriously and people begin to take obedience seriously. And so my question is, does this look anything like you? 
Like over the past six weeks as we've been talking about this, has God begun to move in your own heart? And if He has, where do we go from here? Well, we continue to pray until God says stop or God says yes. We continue to pray. I want you to open your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 20. And today we're going to look at a passage. In fact, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the same passage that will give clear direction to anyone who takes God seriously. It'll give clear marching orders to anyone who takes truth seriously, who takes sin seriously, and who takes obedience seriously. And so I I would ask if you are able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. It's a long passage. It begins, And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before Me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate Me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love Me and keep My commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates." For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth a sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I guess I'm wondering, what do you think? Like, what do you think or feel when you hear those ten commandments? Like, literally those ten words, because in both the Hebrew and in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, it calls this the ten words, the Decalogue, the ten words. Like, what do you think of when you hear those? Like, could you name them before I read them? Like how many of the Ten Commandments can you name if I had not just read them to you? Like in a recent survey, it found that only 14% of Americans 
could name all 10 of the Ten Commandments. Only 14%. That's sad. What adds to that sadness is that 25% of Americans could name all seven ingredients to a Big Mac. Two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. Like, we know that, right? We know that 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 hamburger has to come on that sesame seed bun and it has to have two patties, but we can't name the Ten Commandments. I mean, it it gets worse. 75% of Americans could name all three stooges. And most of them probably knew that Curly Joe left and he was replaced by Shemp, right? And then 35% of Americans could name all six kids in the Brady Bunch a show that ended almost 50 years ago. And yet we don't know the Ten Commandments. Like when you hear the Ten Commandments, do you think as it's read, ooh, oh, I'm messing up there. Ooh, I don't like that. Or do you think, check, check, check. Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Like, I, no big deal. I'm, I've got this. Like, why do you think we have that response? I think it's because deep in the heart of all of us, and certainly the underlying assumption of every religious system is that for me to gain acceptance with God, I have to behave myself. Like if God is ever going to let me into His heaven, I better get my act together. You ask most people if they're sure that they're going to heaven, they'll take a moment. If they're thoughtful, they will pause. They'll look over and think through their life and they will say, well, I hope so. I'm trying to. I'm getting there. Because they see the Ten Commandments as kind of the front door to entering into a relationship with God. And yet they just don't get, like the passage makes it very clear, especially where it falls in the book of Exodus, that the Ten Commandments are not a condition for a relationship with God. If it was, no one would have a relationship with God. The Ten Commandments are not a condition for a relationship with God. They are instead a confirmation of a relationship with God. They're not a condition of His love. They are confirmation of His love. See, in this chapter, we see the connection between God's love and His law, between relationships and rules, between grace and law. And so just to give you a little bit of a background, let you know where we are in the story of God's redemption. Uh, This is about 1400 B.C. and at the giving time of the giving of the law, the nation of Israel has left Egypt and they're encamped around Mount Sinai. Well, how did they get there? Well, we can back up a little bit further. And they're there because God made a promise. Hundreds of years earlier, God had made a promise to a man named Abram that He was going to bless him And that in his seed, like in his family line, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And God renewed that promise, that covenant, with his son Isaac and with Isaac's son Jacob and with Jacob's son Joseph and his 11 brothers. And a few years earlier, 440 years to be exact, 70 people in one family, the family of Abraham, he had passed on, Jacob was gone, or Jacob was there, but Joseph and his brothers all entered into Egypt. And it was all good for a few years. 
440 years earlier, 70 people from one family, which encompassed the whole nation of Israel, goes into Egypt. And there's about a 440 year gap between the end of the book of Genesis and the beginning of the book of Exodus. And so the entire history of all those people living at the time of Exodus was spent in slavery. After Joseph died, there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph and did not keep his promises, and they enslaved the people of Israel. And so their entire life and the life of their mom and dad and their grandma and grandpa and great-grandma and great-grandpa were spent in slavery in Egypt. And they had no law. But they had no need for a law because they had a slave mentality. They just did whatever their master told them to do. In fact, they had adopted most of the Egyptian customs, pagan and polytheistic culture. And then they reached the point in their slavery, in their bondage, where they cry out for deliverance. And God hears them, and He calls Moses to deliver them. And about three months from like the arrival of Moses on the scene in Egypt, Three months earlier than the part, the part we just read, like a lot of stuff happens. Like after about three months had passed since Moses arrived in Egypt with the word from Yahweh, set my people free so they can worship me in the desert. Like that's a great definition of freedom, by the way. You're set free to live free. And in those three short months, they had witnessed the miracles of the 12 plagues on Egypt culminating in the Passover and their freedom from slavery. Remember, 440 years earlier, 70 people in one family arrive in Egypt. And now, as they exit Egypt, there are somewhere between 2 and 4 million of them who call themselves and attach themselves to the nation of Israel. Egypt was the womb for national Israel. And so during these three months, they're led by the Lord as He went before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. During these three months, they tasted the bitter water made sweet at Marah and rested in the the oasis of Elam. They ate quail uh, in the evening and manna in the morning, they drank rock, uh, water springing from the rock of Mirabah, and they got to all look on while Joseph and his small army defeated the Amalekites. I mean, they had a very busy, busy three months. In fact, they had only left Egypt 50 days earlier, and they find themselves camped around Sinai. So if, just hear this, if we start with the story of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, we skip 19 chapters of grace. Like for 19 chapters, God spends His time delivering His people. Like for 19 chapters, God shows them His incredible and undeserved grace. God has, by Exodus 20, already delivered Israel. He had already set them free. He had already adopted them into His family. So when God gives the commands, these aren't like God isn't saying, obey me 
And if you obey me, I will love you. God is instead saying, I love you and I have bought you by my, my own sacrifice and given myself for you. Therefore, let me show you how you can obey me. And so in Exodus 20, God begins to speak. He holds a family meeting. And I think it's really cool that the only, this is the only time since the Garden of Eden where God gathered all of His people into one place and speaks to them directly. Like we read about it in Exodus 19. It says, The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear Me speaking. And as a result of Me speaking, they will know that they can trust You forever. And so He says, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready for the third day because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Like, can you imagine that? Like recounting this story years later in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses reminds the people of Israel that the Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. Like imagine that. Like you've prayed, right? You've prayed, God, if I could just hear your voice. If you'll just speak to me, like all of us long to hear the voice of God. God, I'll read your word. I'll, I'll listen to sermons. I'll download podcasts. I mean, I'll, I'll fill myself with truth, but if I could only hear your voice. And yet, as you read on in chapter 20, these people who actually got to hear the voice of God, their response is, Hey, Moses, never do that again. Like we never want that to happen again. Like we thought we did, not so much. It was terrifying. Like lightning, thunder, fire. Like from now on, if God wants to speak to us, it's okay. He can talk to you and you can bring us His Word. But never do that again because we just cannot handle it. Verse 1, And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. I love what Dr. Albert Moeller says. He calls this, a relational revelation because Yahweh uses the second person singular. When He says, I am the Lord your God, He's indicating a personal relationship with each and every one of His people. So He's not just saying to national Israel, two to four million strong, hey, I'm here for you. He's saying in a very personal way to each and every Israelite, I am the Lord your God. You are mine, and I am your God. And then he takes them down memory lane. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And if you know the Bible, you know how he did that. Ten plagues culminating in the Passover, the death of the firstborn throughout the nation of Egypt. And that death would have fallen even on Israel if Israel had not been obedient to God. And God said, get a lamb, a spotless lamb with no blemish. Slaughter it and take its blood and paint it on the doorpost of your house so that when the destroyer comes through your land, he will know who is mine and who to pass over. And I'm sure the people thought that makes no sense at all. But you know what? <laughs> None of this has made sense. 
These last nine plagues have been amazing and terrifying. And so I guess, you know, it really comes down to, do we trust you? And as the destroyer came through, he saw those from the house of Israel who trusted him because God wanted not just to be their lawgiver, but to be their savior, their rescuer. He wanted them to trust in him. And now it's 50 days later, and God gives them a law to live by. See, the relationship with God was not established by the rules. They came later. He established the relationship before He gave them the rules. Before they even knew what the rules were going to be, He said, I am the Lord your God. And then He gives them this very first command, the first word in the Hebrew, you shall have no other gods before Me. Like God is saying, listen, I have brought you out of slavery, out of political slavery, and now I'm going to bring you and deliver you from slavery to sin, from spiritual slavery. Like I wonder, do you have a story like that? Do you have your own Exodus story? Like I know I do. Like I have a story in my life where God caused the light to kind of go on and I realized how far I was from Him and how deep I was in sin and how there was no way that I could ever get myself out of that hole. It's kind of like the uh, psalmist David in Psalm 50. <laughs> I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry and He lifted me out of the pit, out of the miry clay. I didn't wait as patiently as David. Like I remember when I realized how lost I was I was in a panic and I could not rest until I understood how could I possibly be rescued from my sin. Like that's my Exodus story. You should, if you're a believer, you should have your own Exodus story, your own personal testimony. You have been set free so that you can live free. And so you're set free and God will give you rules to live by. Like we're not, we're not antinomian, you know, which is a term that means against the law. We're not people who live only in grace and just kind of put the law to the side. Adultery is still sin. Murder is still sin. We're not allowed to honor other gods above Yahweh. That's never been the case, but we have been set free so that we can live now under God's great authority. It's kind of like my, my dog, Millie. Now, people who don't know that I have a teeny tiny dog probably have a thought of me like Bobby's a pretty, like he's a guy's guy. He's a normal guy. And then they see a picture of me holding my five pound poodle and they think, oh, Bobby, not so much. Now, that guy, the poodle guy. Okay. But you know, I love my little five pound Millie. She is the sweetest dog in the world. And she never leaves the house unless she goes in the backyard. In our backyard, she is protected by a fence from three other dogs in three other yards. Now, Millie did not become my dog because she was able to jump over that fence and then fence having her in a fence was my right to ownership. The fence is there because she's already mine. The fence is there to protect what is mine. It's, it's there to protect her. And I found like when we think of the law, we don't need to think of the law as something like I had to do. And once I qualified seven out of eight or seven out of 10 or, 
you know, six out of ten or eight out of ten. Now I'm in a relationship with God. No. God brought us into this relationship and He gave us this law. And when we look at the law, we need to remember three very important words. We need to remember protection, provision, and promise. First, God's law is for our protection. I mean, Israel, guys, lived for 400 years in slavery in Egypt and adopted their customs, and they were way more Egyptian than they were Israelite. They were way more polytheistic than they were monotheistic. I mean, they were just a bunch of pagans. They were like a, like a child raised by wolves, and God brings them to the mountain and gives them the law. You see, the law is an act of love, just like for you know, my dog, the fence is an act of love. Every law is a board in the fence to protect our life. God's not protecting Himself by the law. It doesn't affect Him one way or the other. He gives us the law to keep us from slavery. In fact, if you think that ten laws are too many, uh, how, I wonder how many laws we have in the United States. I mean, that's a trick question because literally no one knows. There have been studies trying to find out how many laws we have, and those studies have come back after five years of work and said we don't have the manpower and the resources to figure this out. I mean, there are, there are over 20,000 regulations in this country just regulating gun ownership. In 2010, an estimated 40,000 new laws were added to the various levels throughout our country. In fact, the United States Code, which is an accounting of federal laws, has 50 volumes to it. So if Ten Commandments are too much, well, you know, this is your option here, right? God's law is for our protection. God's law is for our provision. Inside of every law, even the negative ones are these two positives. God is protecting us and God is providing for us. And so for the person who thinks, I think I thought that Christianity was all about relationship and not about rules, needs to understand this. If you're honest with yourself, you get that rules in life were never your problem. You were your problem. Right? Like the, the rules are not the problem. The rules are just sitting there on two tablets made of stone written by the hand of God. They're just sitting there. The rules are not the problem. My heart is the problem. Like, like God gives a rule and there's something deep inside of me that just want to push the edge of that rule. Like if there's a sign that says, do not pass, go past this point, in my heart of hearts, I think, ha ha ha, I'm still alive. What are you going to do about it? Don't eat the fruit. Don't even touch it or you'll die. I touched it. I ate it. I'm here. Like, what's the big deal? There's something in our heart that makes us want to kind of push the envelope and go beyond the bounds of what God has said. The rules are not the problem. I am. The fence is not the problem. I am. The fence protects you so that you can run freely and not be harmed. The, the fence provides freedom. Freedom is not freedom to jump over the fence. It's freedom to run in the yard and have fun. 
There is no freedom without the law. I love how Janie Ortland puts it. She says, does the law restrict us? Sure it does. The way the sky restricts an eagle, or the soil confines a seed, or the ocean cramps a minnow. Embrace God's law as His loving pathway for you out of sin's slavery and into true freedom. Freedom to live life well in the kingdom of His beloved Son. I love that. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 119 writes, I run in the path of your commands because you have set my heart free. Have you experienced that? Like I can just tell you from somebody who grew up in a house where there was no law, where we could get away with murder and do whatever we wanted to and often did, when I found the law of God, I did not find something that was binding me and crippling me and taking away my freedom. I thought, finally, like finally there's something that has substance, something that's real Something that doesn't change on a, you know, by a whim or turn on a dime. I run in the path of your commands because you have set my heart free. God's law is for our protection. It's for our, it's for our provision. And ultimately, God's law points to a promise. And that promise is all about a person. Galatians 3.24 tells us, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. You see, for 1,500 years, the nation of Israel would look at the law of God and look at their own life and see that they did not measure up and know that there had to be a way other than performance to connect with a holy God. Like the law of God exposes my need and it points to the one person in all of the universe who perfectly kept the law of God, Jesus Christ. Have you experienced that? Like for me, I, I came to know Christ because I looked at the law of God and realized how lost I was. Have you experienced that? Because if you do, if you have, then you should, like the psalmist, love the law of God. The psalmist wrote, I delight in your law in my innermost being. Like I remember reading that as a young Christian thinking, okay, I, I, I kind of get that, but like I delight in the Psalms. I delight in the story of the cross and the resurrection. I delight in the, the poetry in Scripture and some of the narrative that's just so fascinating, but law? Like I delight in the rules of God? And yet the Psalms begin in Psalm 1 that says that the righteous person uh, meditates on God's law day and night and it's his delight. And then a Psalm, one Psalm alone, Psalm 119, is the longest chapter in the entire Bible and it's just one giant song with many stanzas singing about the law of God. His statutes and His rules. It just goes on and on and on singing about how amazing God's law is. Why do they sing about God's law that way? Well, C.S. Lewis explains it this way. He says that the delighting in the law of God is like a hiker who finally found, finds himself on a solid path 
after he went on a shortcut and got stuck in the swamp for days on end. Days on end, trudging through the mud and the mire. And finally, he lifts his leg out and sinks it onto solid ground. And he delights in that solid ground. When we read God's law, we find something that's solid, that we can trust, that we can count on, that does not change. Just imagine for one moment, what if people actually obeyed it? I mean, not just the people in this room. What if, what if we said, hey, forget all the social programs, forget all the wars, forget everything else just for a moment. Everybody obey the Ten Commandments. There'd be no war. There'd be no famine. There'd be no sexually transmitted diseases. There'd be no loss. There'd be no need. There'd be no people who didn't have a meal or a place to sleep if we simply trusted God and obeyed His Word. See, ultimate freedom is found under God's authority. Those in the Jesus Revolution, that great revival that swept over our nation and over Europe in the late 60s and early 70s found this when they when they drank deeply of the freedoms of this culture and became addicted to drugs and alcohol and sex and everything else, and it became so empty to them like drinking sand, they arrived at church on a Sunday morning and they heard the Bible taught and heard the law of God. And they, did, they weren't looking for more freedom. They were looking for true freedom for the first time. They were looking for answers and there it was. There was a holy God who had provided a way for them out of the slavery of sin. So where do we start? Well, we start there. Ultimate freedom is found under God's authority. The first commandment kind of sets up, sets us up for the most important decision we will ever make. You shall have no other gods before me. Right, because the first commandment is not simply first in importance, it's first as foundation. All the others build on this command. God is saying, I don't want to be the first of many in your life. I want to be your one and only God. Like I want you to come to me with every desire and every need. I want you to depend on me for everything. I want to be your one and only. I want you to make me front and center in your life. The first word from God calls for unrivaled allegiance. Like this is the starting point for anyone who wants to relate to God correctly. This is, there is only one God and He's not you. There's only one God. And He refuses to simply be at the top of your priority list. He wants to be the only thing on the list. He doesn't want you to make Him first. He wants you to make Him only. Either you will worship Me alone or you won't worship Me at all. Leave behind the land of Egypt and leave behind the ways of Egypt. When He says no other gods before Me, He means no other gods before My face. Do not flaunt your idolatry and your false worship in my face. Calvin said, this sin here is like a shameless woman who brings in an adulterer before her husband's very eyes. You see, I think 
for the first command, marriage is a good analogy for the first commandment. Because you cannot have a both and relationship with your spouse. That just doesn't work. Right? Like you can't have a both and relationship with your spouse. Like if your husband came home and said, honey, I I want you to meet somebody who is really special to me. Now you're special too. Don't get me wrong. But this gal is awesome. I mean, I'm going to be spending a lot of time with her. I'm still going to give you time. You know what? In fact, I think you are going to be great friends. (laughs) How would you respond to that? You would think, I don't think so. Like if your husband said, honey, I I want you to know, you're my number one girl. (laughs) That doesn't mean so much when there's a number two girl. Right? Or a number three girl. Like you would say, and rightly, it's me or her. So make up your mind. Because some relationships are not meant to be both and. They're meant to be either or. I mean, this is Joshua standing before the nation of Israel saying, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of Egypt or the gods of this land or the one true God, Yahweh. Like you don't have to choose Yahweh, but you have to choose. You can't get Yahweh and. It doesn't work this way. that way. This is Elijah on Mount Carmel with the priests of Baal saying, how long will you like hover, gravitate between two decisions? If Yahweh is God, worship Him. But if Baal is God, worship Him. But you can't have Yahweh and. It does not work that way. This is Jesus saying no one can serve two masters. You either love one and hate the other or you'll be bound to one and you'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It does not work that way. And guys, if you want to experience true revival, I encourage you to take some time this week And ask God to examine your heart whether or not you have true unrivaled allegiance to Him. Use the questions on your uh, discussion sheet and kind of ask God, God, show me. Are there any rivals in my heart for your affection? Like, where do I turn to in times of trouble? What is the first source I go to for comfort? What do I love and admire? And honor? What do I spend my money on? What do I invest my time in? What is at the very core of my life and my identity? And I so encourage you to do that. You shall have no other gods before Him. Let's pray, church. Father, thank You that on this day, Memorial Day, we get to come to this table and remember We get to remember the One who gave His life for us to set us free from the requirement of the law that we weren't meeting and the consequences of not meeting it. Lord Jesus, You bore the punishment for our sin so that You could set us free not to live unto ourselves, but unto You who loved us and gave Your life for us. Lord Jesus, we were set free to live free. Lord, let us remember that now as we come to this table, we pray through Christ our Lord.
Amen.